Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the ideas that shape us, and the humans behind the positions in our public conversations. Each episode, I speak to someone with some kind of public voice, from politicians to priests, doctors to directors, journalists to academics, and I ask them about what they hold sacred and what they've learned about engaging across our very deep differences. If you're enjoying The Sacred, please do, as always, do a rating or a review, particularly on Apple Podcasts, as it really helps the algorithm work out which podcasts to recommend to others, and thus helps other people find us. Speaking of recommendations, I'd love to introduce you to a new podcast from Theos, Reading Our Times, presented by our senior fellow, Nick Spencer. Reading Our Times explores the books and ideas that are shaping us today. It's a podcast about ideas that really will make you feel smarter and help you think more deeply. And I think I'd love it even if I didn't know and love Nick. In this episode of The Sacred, you'll hear a conversation I had with Dr. Rachel Clark. Rachel is a doctor with a specialism in palliative care. Before going to medical school, she was a television journalist and documentary maker. She's the author of Sunday Times best-selling books, Your Life in My Hands and Dear Life, which is about her experiences working in a hospice. Her next book, Breathtaking, Life and Death in a Time of Contagion, about her experiences on hospital COVID wards, will be out next year. We spoke about her unsuccessful attempts to become a Christian, her deep faith in humanity, feeling like a fraud as a journalist, and why we should all have more conversations about death. I hope you enjoy listening. Rachel, you've had a bit of warning about the first question that I ask everyone about their sacred values. But I'd love to uh, just hear a bit how you responded to the question itself, to the word. Is it something that you feel comfortable with or is it something that you maybe are a bit ambivalent about or even a bit suspicious of, this chunky word sacred? Well, when I was younger... I would have definitely recoiled a little bit at at that word. I would have been suspicious of it and whether you might be trying to inveigle me into um, confessing a religious conviction that I might not feel. Um, I'm someone who, when I was young, when I was a child, and also when I was a student, I, I really desperately wanted to believe in more than the world I saw around me. I wanted a faith. I I, I actually um, spent some time as a first year student going to church to try and force myself into believing in Christianity. Such was my desire to have a a, a faith that that gave me more than, than what I could observe around me. And I couldn't manage to do it. I guess um, probably faith is not um, compatible with 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 forcing. <laughs> um, and I, I couldn't make myself believe in anything beyond the, the kind of empirical everyday world. I'm a, I'm a real scientist at heart. I like everything to be evidence-based. Um, and I think since then, I probably went through my 20s and even maybe 30s with a with with a healthy scepticism really about organized religion but nevertheless still with a desire to believe in 
more than than, than just the immediate everyday world around me. Um, so I think that now um, I I really enjoyed thinking about that question. I've I've never considered uh, anything in my life, any of my beliefs, to have a, a, a sacred quality to them. But actually, as a woman who's now in her her mid forties and who has worked as a as a doctor for over a decade. I I think I do have something I believe in that's sacred. It's just not religious. It is centered in human beings. And I I have seen so much of human beings in their most testing, challenging, overwhelming, frightening situations who nevertheless manage to rise to those challenges, manage to confront them with extraordinary grace and dignity and strength and concern for others, not themselves. Pretty much every day at work, that's what I witness. And I think it has given me an incredibly powerful faith in human beings. I think we are frail clumsy, awkward, innocent, hopeless, and absolutely amazing creatures. And I'm blown away by what people are capable of every single day at work. And that's my faith. And I think it does have a sacred quality. I think I'm in awe of what human beings are capable of. And I I, I have this sense of wonder at how extraordinary a species we we can be at our best. So so that's what I believe in. Rachel, thank you so much for sharing that. I am always aware any of these conversations about our deepest things, it is a bit like sort of charging in where angels fear to tread, particularly as the first question that you ask (laughs) someone that you've not met. And you've just really beautifully demonstrated why, because we all come to these things with stories and with... um, bruises sometimes, or at least, you know, uh, weathered experiences of trying to navigate how we live and what is good and what we believe. Um, So just thank you for that. I want to dig a little bit deeper into your story, into getting a sense of you. One of the things I'm trying to do is just locate these people that people might know, uh, they might know their voice in public, might know what they stand for or what their particular position is on an issue, but just complicate that a bit and and, um, help narrate the fact that everyone is formed by these complex stories and comes from a very particular place. So I'd love to hear a bit about your childhood, particularly any big ideas that were in the air, philosophical, uh, political, religious, or other that have formed the woman you are today. Just a small question then. (laughs) I know you've touched on it in a few books. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I... I, I grew up in a medical family. My my dad was a doctor, my mum was a nurse, and my grandparents were, were similar. Um, so I definitely, from a very early age, knew about medicine, hospitals, patients, illness. And I was always fascinated by all of that. And, and even when I was a young child, I, I was transfixed by dad's stories of being a doctor. And I found it fascinating that he would wade into these situations uh, that 
many people would probably run a mile from involving, you know, women giving birth in their farmhouses in the villages where he used to be a GP or, um, I don't know, a farmer getting their arm ripped off by a combine harvester. And, and dad would kind of go into these situations and, and, and know what to do and be calm and caring. And I, and I kind of grew up thinking that was extraordinary. And my mum had similar stories about being a nurse in an eye hospital where a great big jar of leeches sat in a back office and those leeches were there to literally suck the blood out of a patient's eyeball if it had become bruised and that blood needed to be sucked away. A leech was the best way of doing it. So endless supply of disgusting stories (laughs) in hospitals. Um, But I think um, growing up in that environment, I... I never really questioned that to be a good person, you should be caring, you should care about other people. That was just a a given, I think, in a medical family like that. And I knew that I wanted to grow up into an adult who would try and do good in some way. I might not know what that way was, but I wanted to care about others and um, try and contribute to my wider community, society, and and so on. I I, I probably wouldn't have framed it in such grandiose terms, but I I definitely felt like that. Um, And I think another really strong value that I had really without realising at the time was this very, very strong conviction um, that uh, really justice was important and injustice was terribly wrong. And if I, even as a young child, if I saw something that I thought was an example of injustice or someone using their power to bully someone else, I was the kind of kid who would take a stand against that. But that was very strong from a very early age and I think carried through into adult life. So interesting. Normally I think people can kind of trace it to particular frameworks um, or perhaps temperaments in their parents. But I also think for some of us, it's just hardwired that that slightly um, wanting to get things right, you know, wanting to do things well. You've spoken um, beautifully about medicine, but didn't initially pursue that career. What was the, what was the um, uh, dog leg that you took first? Yes. Well, I, even though I was fascinated by medicine, I was really worried um, about the idea of pursuing it for all the wrong reasons. So if you're good at science at school, your teachers say, wonderful, you could be a doctor, you must do this. And also, I looked up to my dad so strongly, he was a real um, hero on a pedestal for me in childhood and adulthood, uh, that I was suspicious I might be wanting pursue his footsteps as a doctor, really, not not to impress him, but to be like him. And I, and I knew that those were, were not good motives. And I figured age 16, 17, the most important thing was to choose um, a career that you, you, you hoped would give you the best chance of, of being fulfilled and happy. And the thing that I loved more than anything at school actually was writing, reading and writing. I loved English. I loved writing. And I, as I 
became older, as I became a teenager, I could really see the power of words. Words could change things. You could tell a story as a journalist and through your words, you potentially could change the world. You could do good. You could, you could make things better. Um, and so I decided to pursue an arts degree, philosophy, politics and economics at university with a view to then being a journalist. And that's exactly what I did. So I, I, I had a decade uh, working in television, making current affairs documentaries and uh, absolutely felt as though I was fulfilling all those childhood ambitions. You know, I would go off to the Democratic Republic of Congo and make a film about the civil war there and bring this story and these horrific um, experiences for the the public there to the attention of, of a, a British or Western audience. And that seemed to be a really valuable thing to do. In your late 20s, you did go back to study medicine. What was the impetus? Well, it's interesting because I think in a way it it ties right back to those childhood desires to 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 want to be a good person and try to do something good. Uh, I think journalism is very interesting because the the end point of um, good good high quality current affairs journalism is is definitely good. You have this platform, this this power, this voice through which you can try and draw attention to things that are important. And you do that hoping maybe you can change the world for the better. But the actual day-to-day job of being a journalist, I found very tough, very grueling. And you have to be a pretty, sometimes ruthless person. You really have to fight tooth and nail sometimes to bring the story to the screen in my case, or or to print if you're a print journalist. And I just wasn't really that person. I, 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 I didn't like doing my utmost to persuade someone to appear on camera when it wasn't really what they wanted to do. I, I always felt a bit uneasy about that. And I always felt as though I was faking it a bit. I wasn't really being my authentic self. I was kind of putting on the persona of a tough current affairs journalist while really not feeling like that at all inside. And I think as I got older, I didn't want to go through life feeling like that. I wanted my job, which is the thing we spend most of our waking hours doing, to be an extension of who I really was so that I could walk out of the front door, go to work and not put on any kind of disguise or carapace. I I would just be me. Um, And all the way through my 20s, I had this nagging fear that I'd got it wrong. And actually, I should have been a doctor. That was the thing I was really meant to be. And eventually, that little voice grew so strong, I I sort of did a bit of moonlighting in the evenings and and took my science A-levels around my, my job. And managed eventually to apply to medical school and got in and literally from day one of medical school sitting right in the front of row one in the lecture hall I was in seventh heaven I knew that this was what I wanted to spend my life doing I I just devoured it every single day of medical school was it really felt like a privilege to be learning again after 10 years of working life and 
that just continued when I started practicing as a doctor. I, I felt like I was doing the thing I was born to do and, and what a joy it is to find a job like that. Yes. Oh, that's, it's a lovely thing to hear someone who has got to the place of not feeling like they're pretending or, um, yeah, projecting an image. We, um, one of the things I'm really interested in is our common life and the way we understand each other. And, you know, it's very difficult to build empathy with people who we don't actually know in person. So we end up in these sort of, you know, cognitive shortcuts, creating stereotypes and tribes of people who think this or people who do that. And, Doctors or, or the medical profession, I think, have gone on a real, um, there's been a real change in the sort of public narratives around them. It might, uh, interesting enough, my dad was also a GP and my mum was a nurse and a midwife. So I have similar memories. And even when I was young, it was still a kind of rushing out in the middle of the night, village GP, there's a landline. And I had just this sense that my dad was, there was, there was still kind of vestiges of deference that being the village GP's daughter came with a sort of status. And, you know, I, I love the fact that people clearly loved and respected him and, and valued his life in the village. But I've seen how that's really changed, you know, over time. Those relationships are harder to sustain with bigger numbers. And also that deference has, has, has slipped away. And I, I think now what's interesting is those those writers who are also doctors like you, there's been a real, real um, publishing boon of them. You know, Amir Khan, most recently, Henry Marsh, Paul uh, Kalamithia, really the way a lot mm. of us understand what doctors do now and what medicine is like, because we don't have enough of an ongoing relationship with any of them. What Do you see that as part of your vocation? How do you perceive the narratives around medicine having changed? I, th- I think this is a really fascinating area. And uh, uh, undoubtedly, wh- when our fathers were practicing, so if you think of sort of 30, 40 years ago, medicine was still an incredibly paternalistic profession. So so doctor knew best, doctor told you what was right and, and best for you. And you as patient, probably pretty meekly, went along with that. And I still meet patients today regularly who um, maybe are in their 80s or 90s, and they retain that that absolute sense of, you tell me what to do, you tell me what is right, and I will just respect you because you're a doctor. Um, and I, I, I think it's um, tremendously good and important that that world of, of medical deference has changed radically, almost unrecognisably compared to 40, 50 years ago, um, so much for the better because the power dynamic between a doctor and a patient is really profound. And I, and I know that on the uh, few occasions that I've been a patient in hospital, I've been shocked by how potent that still is. You're so vulnerable as a patient. You're stripped of your identity. You are literally barcoded. You 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 have a, a label around your wrist with a barcode on it. You wear a gown. You are intimidated and you're often too frightened to say how you feel or assert yourself. And that's even as a kind of white well-educated, confident um, woman in her 40s. Um, so with all of the sort of privileges that that, that brings. Um, I think today, patients are much more aware of themselves as 
as equals, as the person who should be the center of every medical encounter. The whole point of medicine is to try and enhance health and well-being. And if the patient isn't at the center of that, then we're doing something fundamentally wrong. I think it's refreshing and wonderful that today's generations of doctors many of them have that attitude. I, 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 If you heard hesitation in my voice there, it's because I think we've still got a long way to go. Um, and it's very easy not to notice how much power you have over patients as, as a doctor. Um, day in, day out, you may be seeing tens, hundreds of patients a week. And I think you cease to see the individual. It's hard to see the individual and the vulnerabilities of individual patients when you're you're seeing so many of them. And sometimes the time pressures are, are very, very profound, particularly in an understaffed NHS. Um, so we all we need to be vigilant as doctors, as nurses. We need to try and be self-consciously aware of our power and the ways in which unconsciously we can intimidate patients and we need to proactively really try to um, draw out our patient's voice and, and, and really proactively respect and listen to them. And that should be the foundation of every medical encounter. So there's a long way to go. Um, I think the, the flip side of that is um, losing deference, I think, is a, a good thing in medicine. Um, but sometimes I think today, um, there's an element of not lack of de deference exactly, but sometimes almost um, anti-expert feeling that can be quite difficult to navigate as a doctor. So we're, we're, we're well aware in 2020 of, um, uh, you know, some politicians saying we've had enough of experts, you know, tr trying to um, reach out beyond um the 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 professions um in which expertise is collected and reach out beyond that expertise through to the public directly and i think in a way that can sometimes be dangerous that can lead to populism that is is not helpful and and if you think about that in the realm of medicine a good example there is the whole debate around vaccination where there's a very vocal very powerful anti-vax movement um, that tries very, very hard to, um, I would say, intimidate and frighten parents, particularly into not vaccinating their children. There is very little evidence to support the harms of vaccines versus the overwhelming weight of evidence that supports the good they achieve. We've just only, only last month, the news was announced that we've eliminated polio in the whole of Africa. What an incredible achievement, thanks to vaccinations, that is. That's going to save thousands and thousands and thousands of lives. Um, but if you have no respect for expertise, then something that a loudmouth anti-vaxxer person on, on YouTube will spread to hundreds of thousands of people will carry the same weight as the views of the World Health Organization, for instance. And I don't think that is a state of affairs that helps anyone. It certainly doesn't help promote health and well-being because 
evidence matters, it's important. And you have expertise as a doctor because you have learned the evidence, you have learned skills of practice. And actually, if I were um, flying in a plane, I would want a pilot with expertise to fly me. That would be safe. And likewise, if I were seeing a doctor to have brain surgery, I'd want the person who had the skills and expertise to do it. So I think the 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 sort of anti expert um, environment that's becoming ever more prevalent, I think, in the twenty first century is is not necessarily good for patients' health. No, thank you. Um, I know that you moved into palliative care as your specialism. What led you uh, into that field? Well, one of the things I I saw. Uh, from very early on as as a new doctor was how very, very far from ideal uh, patients' deaths in hospital could be. Um, It was really heartbreaking to see patients in a hospital ward, frightened, vulnerable, um, alone, perhaps deteriorating very rapidly and the fact that they were dying being unrecognised by their medical team and therefore uh, families not being called in time, patients not necessarily receiving the um, medications that could help them maintain their comfort and dignity um, sufficiently quickly. And that was really heartbreaking. And and it, it also struck me that Although all patients, I believe, are vulnerable, some patients are much more vulnerable than others. So if you have a disability, um, a a mental health condition, and if you're very frail and approaching the end of your life, you are particularly vulnerable. You don't have a voice. You're, you're, You're too weak. You may literally be too breathless, for instance, to have a voice. And I wanted to advocate for those patients um, in a very profound sense. You only die once. There is no second chance. You don't get to do it again. And so it is absolutely vital that we as doctors do, do all we can to ensure that every single patient dies with as much dignity and comfort as is humanly possible. But that doesn't always happen for many reasons, not least the fact that you are taught very little about death and dying as a medical student. So when you start out as new doctors, you're often very uncomfortable with the idea of patients dying. You're intimidated by it. You don't know how to speak to those patients or their families. You don't really know what to do. So you shrink away from it all. And that just compounds the problem. So I saw palliative medicine as a a speciality in which there was potential to really do good. And and I also believed that the narrative around death and dying is part of the problem. If, If you as a patient discover you have a terminal illness, you may assume that that means you are heading on a trajectory that will end in terrible misery, pain, distress, lack of dignity. And so the narrative that you tell yourself about what your life will be like from this point onwards um, can actually make you feel infinitely worse. And actually, palliative medicine is about much, much more than just 
managing symptoms such as pain. It is about trying to enable patients to live as richly and fully as they possibly can all the way until the end of their life. Even if you have weeks, days, hours to live, it is still possible to make that lived experience as positive and meaningful as as it can be. And that's the part of palliative medicine that I really love. It's an opportunity to rip up that that negative, fearful narrative and try to encourage patients to write a new story for the end of their lives in which the things that they have always loved in the rest of their life, they still find a way of clinging on to and and we can help them do that. And that's an extraordinary privilege to be a part of. I want to ask um, about COVID particularly in a moment, and I know that you're working on a new book about that, but uh, first I want to talk about assisted dying. And I know that you've been very careful what you say about it, so I'm not going to push you to take any kind of position, but it is one of the debates or the disagreements in our common life that goes quite deep and seems quite intractable in that my perception is that mainly people on either side of the debate the debate find it really hard to wrap their heads around the other group's position. What yeah. are your perceptions of where we are in it? And what do you think is making that conversation um, more difficult? And are there any ways we could, even if we're not going to get to agreement on it, do those debates better? Yeah, it's it, it's such an important issue. And and the reason I, I, I don't publicly state where, where I stand on assisted dying is simply because I do not want that to ever compromise the relationship I have with my patients. So I care for patients who are dying every day and I would never want me being a a, a vocal proponent either of assisted dying or against assisted dying to cause any kind of mistrust or concerns amongst my patients. But that said, I'm I'm delighted to discuss the issues. I think that... um, Fundamentally, this debate is an example of one where fear is at the heart of the debate. So fear, for instance, that um, you may endure a, a horrific and traumatic death because you are not allowed assisted dying, um, or conversely, fear that um, you may be pressured and inveigled into ending your life via assisted dying when you might not want to, precisely because assisted dying is legal. Um, I think whenever fear underlies a debate, it can very quickly become extreme and quite toxic. Um, And the important thing to do is to, to take breath, sort of step back a bit and say, right, let's talk about our common ground here. Because I think however strongly people fear, feel about assisted dying, we surely all share the common ground of wanting to minimise suffering and distress in our population at large. We want to maximise dignity and self-respect and minimise fear that, you know, that they have to be kind of basic values that that we all share. Um, I think a profound issue for me with assisted dying is the fact that 
Although there are many, many loud voices in this debate, I'm struck by the fact that we rarely hear from people who are dying themselves. Um, And although there are often patients who are very vocal um, about what they wish to happen in the future, I don't think we tend to hear from patients who are perhaps in their final days, weeks. And that's because, in a sense, those patients are too busy dying. They are focused on the things that really matter to them. They often have drawn their family, their loved ones close. They're exhausted. They don't have much energy. They're, they're, they're too tired to engage in a, in a debate about issues. And I think, for me, the most important thing about this debate, and I think it, it, it should be conducted as openly and all-inclusively as possible, it is that the experiences and thoughts and fears and concerns of, of patients who are themselves approaching the end of life somehow needs to be captured. And that's a very difficult thing to do. Um, it's, it's often presumed um, by people who support assisted dying that palliative care doctors are, are, are all anti-assisted dying because we're all religious. Um, I'm an example of a palliative care doctor who is an atheist, and so that that doesn't apply in my case. Um, And I think sometimes people assume that um, if you're a palliative care doctor, you're opposed to assisted dying because you think that everybody, so long as their palliative care is good enough, can have a good and peaceful and dignified death. Um, Again, That's not my position. I think that sometimes it is not possible to palliate all the symptoms at the end of life. I think usually we're very, very good at doing that, but not always. And therefore, we have to have this discussion and we have to have it in a calm, controlled way where we're not shouting at each other, but we're building on the common ground we have and actually trying to base... um, any changes in the law on evidence rather than who has the loudest voice. Thank you. You have been, I believe, although I'd love to hear more about it, involved in caring for patients um, during the pandemic. I'd love to hear a bit about your experience with that, really. And then particularly around death, do you think we as a society might get better at talking about it, facing it, resourcing better care, thinking about it in advance, or is it likely that we'll just put it back in our mental boxes because it's too overwhelming? Mm. Well, I, I, I've spent the pandemic um, caring for many patients who have been dying and, and have gone on to die from COVID. Uh, so I think we heard an awful lot in the news about ICU, intensive care, patients going to intensive care and um, having their life supported via ventilators. Of course, the majority of people who have died from COVID have never gone anywhere near an intensive care unit. And that's because intensive care is a very grueling treatment. You have to be robust and strong enough to cope with intensive care. And if you're not, it's, it's not an appropriate treatment. So I have cared for many patients who have been very elderly and frail with many different 
underlying illnesses, heart problems, kidney problems. And therefore, they were never able to go to intensive care because they simply would never have come off that ventilator. They they, they were not strong enough to do that. Um, And those deaths predominantly have taken place on hospital wards. So we, we, we divided our hospital into COVID and non-COVID areas um, for infection control purposes. And I think um, it has been incredibly difficult because the, the numbers of patients and, and the, the, the speed with which COVID has overwhelmed many of those patients has been like nothing I've ever experienced before all your patients dying of the same illness, dying in the same way and, and dying so quickly. And of course, the, the really astonishing and unprecedented aspect of dying from COVID has been, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the fact that everybody has worn PPE, protective equipment, masks, gloves, gowns, and family members very often have not been able to visit this has meant, if you think about it from a patient's perspective, they have left their family, they've said goodbye from their family, and from that moment onwards until the end of their life, they have never seen a human face again. Every single human being they have seen, their face has been covered with a mask and probably a visor as well. And even as I say that, it it, it pains me because the one thing that matters so much at the end of life is intimacy. It is it is human closeness, compassion, kindness, tactility. We are tactile creatures. We're mammals. Touch is so important to us. And I have not been able to touch any patient without a mark, with without a, a set of gloves. Um, all of that has made the process so difficult, and we've had to be really creative to try and communicate our care and our compassion despite the PPE. Um, So we've done that through symbols. So for for instance, in my hospital, whenever we made a diagnosis that someone was we, we felt was beginning to die from COVID, we had hundreds of little knitted hearts that the local community had made. And we would place a heart in that patient's room somewhere on their pillow in their hand on their table and then when communicating to their family who were maybe at home and perhaps not able to come visit because they had their own health problems we would ensure that we gave that family another heart so that albeit only through a symbol they were connected to the person they loved who who was themselves barricaded inside the hospital. Um, and then when that patient died, we were able to, to give the family the heart that had been with them at the end. And it sounds like a small gesture, but it was something that families were really able to cling on to and that meant something and that I think told them that we cared and we were trying to be there as a kind of proxy family for their loved one. Um, But all of that has been terribly, terribly difficult. And I think we have learned an awful lot from this spring about how we need to try and do things differently if we end up in another situation where where COVID rears its head again. And, 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 And the way in which we need to do things differently is to 
in which whatever creative ways we can bring the intimacy and closeness um, back to the dying phase of patients' lives and ensure that although we have we, we, we try and keep our infection measures in place, we never do that to the extent that patients are completely isolated and cut off from other human beings. Um, in answer to your second question, I think that um, many, many good things come from periods of, of crisis and catastrophe and disaster. So the Second World War gave us penicillin and antibiotics, for example. It has saved millions of lives since then through through that medical invention. Likewise, I hope that with COVID, this focus which we all have had to apply to our own mortality, the fact that we are we are human, we are frail, we are, are not going to live forever, might help all of us talk a little bit more easily about death and dying in the future. I don't imagine it will eradicate the taboo status of death, but it might make all of us feel a little bit more comfortable about discussing with our families what our wishes are at the end of life. If we deteriorated, if we caught COVID, would we want to go to hospital where we may be cut off from our families? Or actually, would we prefer to take our chances at home and be surrounded by our families and know that we have the people we loved close by us at the end? All of this is easy to chat about. It's easy to make a note of. If we do that in advance, it's so much better than having a crisis conversation when your family member is in hospital and a doctor says, would they wish to go onto a ventilator? And you have to say, I've no idea. I've never had the conversation. So I dearly hope that that is a positive that will come from COVID. And we might all sit a little bit more comfortably with these conversations because they're never as bad as people fear. And sometimes having the conversation is almost an an act of kindness, an act of love. It's just finding out what your family members wish for. And that's a a positive thing to do. Thank you, Rachel. I'm trying not to cry too loudly into the microphone because it doesn't make the easiest listening. I'm going to ask uh, a question that I ask a lot of people, um, which is about as we try and build empathy, as we try and better understand people different from ourselves, whether that's they have a different job or they have a different political position or a different religion, um, what what have you learned along the way? So is there something that you'd really like those outside the medical profession to understand? Perhaps there's a myth that gets peddled a lot or a particular misconception that you'd like to challenge. And is for your fedo- fellow medics, is there something um, that you, similarly you wish they'd stop doing or you wish they'd... Um, do differently or um, maybe more positively framed that you wish they'd do when they're maybe particularly in their kind of public um, persona or in our common life, that sense of if there's two tribes, of course they're not because we have multiple mm. identities and multiple tribes, but if you think of them for a moment as two tribes, what what might help us um, engage across that difference? So I think of all the things that I believe would benefit medicine and benefit doctors, It is the simple but absolutely profound act of trying to see the patient in front of you as a human being who has a life 
history, a, 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 a past, a future that is filled with hopes and wants and desires and fears. They are as much a human being as you are. If you can try to maintain that sense of each patient as a human being, you are so much less likely to unintentionally intimidate that patient or um, make them feel stupid or make them feel frightened. If you can convey that you care about them as a human being, then you have gone you have you have made such strides in helping that patient feel safe in a vulnerable environment. Even if you ask a patient what they do for a living, how they're feeling today, are they having a good day or a rubbish day? Anything that's a question beyond, let me ask you about your hard symptoms, your illness, the pills that you're taking. It's a wonderful way of communicating to the patient that they matter to you as a human being. They are important to you as their doctor. Um, and it is so hard to do that in, in frenetic, busy, over overwhelming um hospital wards. But that's the one thing we have to try and do. It is to hold on to the fact that these are vulnerable human beings in front of us. And just a few words can make that individual feel safe and cared for. Conversely, I would suggest that when you are a patient feeling frustrated or angry because you've been waiting for six hours in A&E, or you're frightened because you feel as though none of the doctors will take seriously how worried you are about your elderly father, for instance. Uh, it can also be really helpful to try to remember that the doctor or nurse in front of you is also a human being, is also probably every bit as angry as you are and frustrated and ashamed of the six-hour waits that everyone's doing in A&E. They probably wish they could change that even more than you do because it's their lived working experience day in, day out. And actually, the doctor is a stressed, exhausted um, human being who maybe themselves is feeling overwhelmed in the situation because they've been on their feet for 13 hours or because this particular situation reminds them of something traumatic that happened to them in their own life five years ago. In other words, both those tribes, if they can be called tribes, I think can really benefit from just remembering that at the end of the day, even if you are the member of a tribe, you are still an individual. You are a human being. We're all frail. We're all vulnerable. We can all do so much better for each other just by trying to remember that and just by remembering that at the end of the day, we all have the common ground of being human. We have the same fears, the same needs, the same desires fundamentally. Um, so don't retreat into um, frustration or arrogance if you're a doctor. Try and maintain your humanity. Rachel Clark, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. You can find previous episodes on our website. Have a look through the back catalogue and I'm sure you'll find someone that you think sounds interesting. 
You can also connect with us via our social channels and we always love hearing from you. So please keep sending in your suggestions for guests or improvements. If you value what we do, the best way you can support us is by sharing, rating and reviewing the podcast, especially on iTunes, because it really helps other people find it. The Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos, and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk. Listener.